Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. I'm glad to be back with you after a period of sickness. And um, a long period of not preaching, which is frustrating to me. And especially knowing the next text that I have the privilege of preaching, which is Romans 8.28. So I have been very much wanting to preach this sermon to us. So let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Romans 8.28. As we go through the Word of God, this is the text we have arrived at today, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Our verse begins with the word and, the conjunction and. And this indicates that what came before, what was said immediately prior, is in synchronicity, is, is a part of now what comes. Da-da, 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 and da-da, da-da, da-da. So they're working together. So what came before? Well, The Apostle Paul had been talking about the suffering that we have in this life, and he had been talking about the uh, sympathetic, the solidarity in suffering that creation has, all right? And so in verse 22 above, the Apostle Paul had said, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves... And so both all of creation and those of us who belong to Christ groan and we suffer in this present life. Always strikes me as uh, sort of the, the, the ultimate contradiction of the stupidity of the modern world when you stand next to the grave and the liturgy, you know, 500, 1,000 years old is in the midst of life we live in death. And I love the liturgy by the, by the grave because it's like, okay, finally, there's some truth in the midst of life. We live in death. Driving over here this morning, and it's uh, not quite completely light yet, and I'm, you know, I'm blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I notice this huge, like, sort of something. And it's half on the road and half off, and it's like, big and round and long, and, and immediately I think to myself, is there a body in there? Is there some homeless person sleeping inside of that? You know, in the midst of life, we live in death. This is what we live in the midst of. Death is everywhere. Lucretius, you know, the old Greek poet, he says, that the wailing of the newborn is mingled with the dirge for the dead. In the midst of life, we live in death. And of who might we seek for relief 
And then, this is, of course, why we deny it. And of whom may we seek for relief? This is, again, the liturgy at the graveside. Of whom may we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins art justly. What is the word? Displeased, thank you. And so when we come to a verse like this, this verse is cataclysmic. Because this verse really does face, in the midst of life, we live in death, and of whom may we seek for relief, but of thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. And then it says, and we know that God causes all things to work. In other words, it's only when you have your eyes open and you actually look at what life is. You acknowledge your own sin. You acknowledge your own suffering. You acknowledge the suffering of your parents, the suffering of your children. You acknowledge the connection between the suffering of your grandparents and the suffering of your grandchild, their grandchildren. You acknowledge the continuity of the covenant of what? Original sin, what, what Stephen was talking about in Sunday school. You acknowledge that when God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You acknowledge that in Adam's sin, we sinned all. That in Adam's fall, all of us died. Ah, ah, this, this is the world we live in. Everything in this world conspires to get us to deny the reality of the world we live in. And we are doing our damnedest to deny it, even and especially at death. This is why I would waste my time talking about cremation. I'm not in favor of drugging ourselves so we're not aware of it as we're dying. All right? I think that God intended for us to be weaned from this earth through suffering. Okay? And I think that that helps us plead with God to take us to be with himself. And I I think it helps us to do the work of saying goodbye to our loved ones with humility and meekness and I think all kinds of wacko things. And it's precisely that world which is the true world. It's that world that's the true world. That world, life is hard. And then you die. This is true. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't unbelievable joys. You know, the woman who gives birth forgets her pain for the joy of the new life that God's given her. And she knows when she's happy about that new life that that new life is going to cause her endless torments the rest of her life. And the only relief she'll get is her own death. And what joy? Why would any sane person do it? Well, for joy. And so, listen. Can we please stop all this conspiracy of triviality and superficiality and triteness and stupidity? We suffer. This is what the Apostle Paul has been talking about. And Christians have special suffering. And Christians have special suffering because the world hates us. It doesn't hate us because of who we are. It hates us because God chose us. The world knows God chose us. The world knows we're the chosen. The world sees it. The world hates it. It angers the world. It makes the world jealous to see that there are those that God shines his face upon. 
that he lifts up his countenance upon them and gives them peace. But we take comfort. This is what this text has been talking about. We take comfort. You can't take comfort if you don't acknowledge in the midst of life we live in death. Do you see this? We have to have our eyes, as they say, wide open. Okay? And then all of a sudden the world is ordered. The world makes sense. And the world is heavy. And it's precisely here that we have the comfort from the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul who writes, all nature's groaning with us, and we go, huh, I never noticed nature was groaning, (laughs) you know? And then all of a sudden, we become naturalists. For the first time ever, we see nature, as it really is. And then we understand the statement, they say that all of nature, that God is love, while all of nature, red in tooth and claw, you know that poem? It's a poem, Right? An old poem, and it says, they say that God is love. While all nature, red in tooth and claw. In other words, there's a contradiction here, right? Right? We see nature as it is. Nature itself suffers under the fall of Adam. And then we find out that God says, yeah, but my Holy Spirit prays for you. And you don't even know how to pray for yourself, but he does it in, in, in groans that we can't even understand. And we go, "Eh, I see, I see, I see, I see. Even if nobody else sees, I see. Life! Life! Remember Christian, beginning of Pilgrim's Progress? Life, life! I see. I'm not going to go back to being blind. Yeah, but, but listen. All creation is waiting with you. You've got solidarity with, you know, the screech owls and with the, 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 the molten uh, lava and with, you know, the dead fish and with Chernobyl. You've got a lot of solidarity to give you hope that, yes, the world is under a curse. Then it says... Then it says, and this is leading into the, the great, well, I don't want to say the greatest good, but one of the greatest goods of all of Scripture, the rest of Romans 8. Precisely here it says, you know, you got the comfort of solidarity creation, you got the comfort of the Holy Spirit praying for you in words that groans that you can't even understand. And, 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 We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, I don't make noises like that to be theatrical. I try to have some, some harmony between the truths that I'm preaching and the tone of my voice and the strength of, of what I say. And if there's ever a text in Scripture that shouldn't just sort of off my tongue, it's this. We know all things 
<laughs> work together. I mean, it sounds like the words of, <laughs> you know, the most trivial, superficial, idiotic person that's ever faced the universe. I mean, it's so stupid. And we know. Oh, yeah, you Christians know, don't you? Well, fancy schmancy you. You know, huh? Oh, what do you know? Well, what do you know? Christians know that all things work together for good. What do you know about that? So those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we know that God all... And, oh, those Christians, they are... Now, you know the words that's coming right there, so triumphalistic. You know? Stupid Christians. Stupid, stupid, stupid Christians. They know. (laughs) Oh, man, you talk about the opiate of the masses. And we know that all things work together for God. Yeah, yep, 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 we do. Remember that uh, Bill Cosby, we're going, we're going to the zoo. We're going to Japan. We're going to China. We're going everywhere. Yep, 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 yep. And we know that all things work together for good. Listen, this truth is either the worst joke that's ever been told or it is the center of the universe for those who belong to God, who love him, who are called according to his purpose. There's no middle ground on this truth. It is either the stupidest, most conniving, trite thing that's ever been said, or it's true. (laughs) One or the other. Either you live in light of this or you live mocking this. But there's nobody that's indifferent to this statement of the Word of God. There's nobody who's indifferent to it. You know, my own personal conviction about this verse, I I have certain things in my life which I resent people saying to me. Do any of you have certain things people say to you that you resent? You don't tell them you resent it, but you resent it, right? Okay, if I hear one more comment about me being a giant and tall, you know, all, all of the Moors feel that way. You know, I just don't want to. I just don't want to have one more joke about how tall I am. Right? But you don't say anything because that would lower your stature. When I was growing up, people used to say to me, "How do you feel about having Joe Bailey as your father?" Anybody ever come up to you and say, how does it feel to have Joe Bailey as your father? I'd say, yeah, you just said it. You know, people would be very interested in knowing what what it was like to have a man that was well-known and respected as your father, (laughs) you know. And I always resented it. Because the implication was that I resented it. And I really resented the implication that I resented it. (laughs) Seriously. I was like... Dude, it's the best thing in the world. Honestly. What twisted dude would resent the fact that his father was a good man? 
I mean, you know. Okay, here's another one. This is another thing I always resent it. I always resent people who tell me when I shouldn't say, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I've spent my life listening to people delineate all the particularities in which we ought not to say, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. I think that the world is one huge conspiracy against any declaration that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I don't think it's accidental that a world that's on a highway to hell wants to shut Christians up from confessing that we know that all things God orders for our good, those of us who know, who love him and are called according to his purpose. You know how the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed that I know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Are you ashamed of this? Do you keep your mouth shut, you know? You know, you're ashamed of, well, I mean, it sounds so trite. It sounds so superficial. It sounds so blonde. Can I get away with that, Bailey? <laughs> She's my granddaughter. Well, okay, so let's cop to it. Let's just admit that Christians are blonde. We have a different perspective on life, and it's positive. Because why? Well, because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things to work together for good for us. We know this. And then we come to the question, we, who is this we, white man? Who is the we? Well, clearly those to whom the Apostle Paul is writing the letter, which is to say this we is inclusive of the Christians in Rome. But listen. All of Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Don't make the mistake of being intimidated by people that point out that every particularity in Scripture has an application. The sit and believe, and you know, they trot out these large phrases, and you're intimidated, and you think, well, I don't want a proof text. And maybe that just had to do with the Romans, you know? Maybe it doesn't have to do. Maybe the we ain't me. Now, it's you. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Okay? Now, going beyond the word we, who is it? Well, we know that we is those who love God, right? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. So you see that the two uh, subordinate clauses, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, defines the we, okay? We are those who love God, are those who are called according to his purpose. If you are included in the we, then you love God, and you are called according to his purpose. This is not a just ollie-ollie-in-free to man, generically. This is not the sort of cosmic stoicism that characterizes so many people today, Christians and non-Christians, who just say, well, you know how they do it, you know, you, you know, there's blood caked on the wall incommoding the passers-by, and they, well, they, it'll all work for the good, you know? This is what pagans say. Everything will be all right, every day in every way. The world is getting better and better. We know it'll all work out for the best. We know he's in a better place now. And this, all of this is a denial of every single truth of Scripture, that there is peculiarity to God's people. That's what holiness is. They're peculiar, the people of God. And particularity to his call. Particularity, specificity, individuality to the work of God. God is not indiscriminate in the good that he gives man. God is particular. He's specific. He's individual. Okay? And so again, we, as those who love God, we, as those who are called according to his purpose. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't talk that much about us loving God. The Apostle Paul is pretty fixated on the God-to-man word direction. But that doesn't mean that the man-to-God direction is insignificant and that it's not in Scripture. All through the Old Testament, God refers to those who belong to him, his covenant people, as those who love God. And he commands it in Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So it's a command. And it's us loving God. And then the Old Testament describes God's covenant people, the church, the called out ones, as those who love God in Deuteronomy 36, where we read, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God. So this is how God calls us to him. To love the Lord your God, he will circumcise our hearts and the hearts of our descendants Don't subvert God's circumcision of the hearts of your sons and daughters. Don't try to ameliorate the painful operation of God on your children. Don't try to placate your children when they scream. This is a precious promise from God. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that, what? You know what it comes next? So that you may live. You want to live? You want your children to live? 
And then in Psalm 31:23, oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. So again, who is the Apostle Paul giving this precious promise to? Those of us who know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. First, to those who love God. Second, to those who are called according to his purpose. Who are those called according to God's purpose? Are those the righteous ones who have earned his favor? Calvin has just a one-sentence comment about this. And the center of the sentence is the word reciprocity. We're so big on reciprocity. I'll do for you if you do for me. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? There's no reciprocity to the call of God. None. It is uh, unilateral. You know the word unilateral? It's unilateral. Who are those called according to his purpose? The righteous ones who have earned his favor, the sinless ones who have impressed him, who have caught his attention, those with somewhat good inclinations because he's given them a prevenient grace, which seeing he finds himself responsive to. Those who obey God somewhat, those who obey God reasonably, those who do the work of faith as far as it is, imp- as far as it is possible in themselves doing the work of faith, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, knowing he has done everything he can for us, and now putting our faith in him is the one thing left that he requires us to do ourselves. Are you with me? No. No. No, 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 no. Who are those called according to his purpose? Well, they aren't those who call In any way, they are those who are called. They're not actors or actresses. They are acted upon. And they are acted upon as Stephen opened up in the Sunday school class from before the foundation of the earth. You were chosen by God from before the foundation of the earth if you belong to him. It's not in any righteousness you've done. It's not any uh, impression you made. It's not that you were faithful to take what little grace God had given you and build upon it. You know, it's not like the three servants that are given, you know, ten talents and three talents and one. You know? Well, they improved on it. You know? Listen, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, God is not worried about what you think about him. He's not worried about whether you think he's fair and just. He's not worried about our miserable sense of fairness. God does not want to avoid offending our sensibilities in connection with self-determination and autonomy and free will. God really doesn't give a rip about our free will. Okay? He just doesn't care. He is not bothered. God actually has chosen you. 
And he did it before you existed. If you belong to him, if you know that all things work together, if you love him, if you are the called according to his purpose. And those of you who are called know that you're called. That's part of the call. We know that all things work together for good. This is in the Old Testament in Genesis in Genesis 18:19, God is speaking of Abraham, and he says what? He says, for I have what? I have chosen him. For I have chosen him. And then he goes on and says, I have chosen him what? So that he may command his children. In other words, if God hadn't chosen Abraham, Abraham would not have commanded his children to, give, to keep the way of the Lord. I have chosen him so that he command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. (laughs) How bilateral is that? It's not bilateral at all. It's unilateral. Everything good flows from the choice of God. And then we see the same theme over and over again in the New Testament in John 15, 16. Jesus says, this is Jesus, you know, the, 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 the one that everybody thinks they know. The one that everybody's telling you that they know better than you know who he is, right? And so we ought to let him speak for himself occasionally. And so this is what Jesus himself says. He says, you did not choose me. Okay? Nothing like a negative to hammer a point home. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Sitting back there this morning during Sunday school class, young man to my right, about three or four chairs, and every time I see that young man, I just go into conniptions. I just think to myself, no. And then I think to myself, yes! And then I think, no. And then I think, but yes! I think, impossible. And then I think, possible! I mean... Okay, there are a lot of us in this room that are pretty unlikely as the choice of God. Eh? You with me? Huh? Perfect moralist lane. And good-looking to boot. It's disgusting. If I'd had a choice, you wouldn't have been chosen. I don't want you having another reason to feel superior to me. Don't worry, I love him. He knows it. I mean, you think about how unlikely the choice of us is, right? There is absolutely no way to explain the group of people that are here this morning, our meekness, our humility, and our love, and our zeal to worship God, except that we've been chosen. And this young man, you talk about a hellion growing up. I can't tell you how many times his mother asked us to pray for him. He tormented his mother day in, day out. I was talking to another man this last week, and he described his childhood to me. 
And this man is in our church, and this man tormented his parents as he grew up by his own confession. How do you explain us? The most unlikely. Not many among us are rich in the world's eyes. Not many of us are powerful. Not many of us have PhDs. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world. Why? God loves to confound the wise. God loves to take the most unlikely stupid idiots on the face of the earth and flip them upside down. And that's us. God chose us. Nothing in your hand you bring, simply to the cross you cling. And you know something? It is not until you're aware of God's choice and that he has chosen to be merciful to you that you know that all things work together for good. Because until you know that all things work together for good, until you know that God has set his mercy upon you, you tremble. You spend your life dreading his punishment and hating him for the fact that he will consume you in his wrath. And those are the only two kinds of people on the face of the earth. I don't care what religion they are, what skin color they are, I don't care how educated or uneducated they are. The two categories of people are those who live in abide in the wrath of God and those who we know that all things work together for good. And they hate God, honestly. I say this over and over and over and over to you. Because you can't begin to live in the presence of the Lord until you recognize the hatred for God that you're surrounded by. In your homes. Okay? I'm looking at the news last night and I'm seeing the women's march. It's incomprehensible to explain that other than a pure, living, abiding, bloodthirsty hatred for God. And that's not a political statement. That is a moral judgment. You look at the list of the sponsoring organizations again and again and again. It's the bloodthirsty abortionists that are there marching. And they say it. Look at the names of the sponsoring organizations. What unites the women in Washington that are marching? What unites them is that to kill babies is good. Now, think about that. The most precious gift a woman has to give this world is the gift of life. I mean, come on. Is the womb great or what? How can you be an old man and not walk down the street and see children and smile? It's not anything good in you. It's something good in children. You know, I love the fact that last week I was reading an article that Mitch Daniels was quoted in again and again and again about the financial problems of higher education because state legislatures aren't giving them money anymore. And so the article kept quoting Mitch Daniels, who's our former governor and is now the president of Purdue, right? I wish we had gotten him. Full up. 
okay? And you know, at one point in the article, you know what he says? He says, we're not having enough children. Balaam spoke. (laughs) You know, we're not having enough children. You know? Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And then John 15, a few verses later, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. The world hates God. The world hates those chosen by God. Now, those who love God, who are they? Those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. The reason that we love God is because he loved us first. When God set his love on us, we responded by loving him. He chose us, he set his affection on us, we responded. That's why we love him. He called us to himself that we might love him, which is to say, without his choice and call, we would never love him. Back then to the beginning of our text. Remember, it begins with, and we know. Who is it who knows these things? Well, it is those who love God. It is those God calls according to his own purposes. It's not those who love God enough who find him working all things for good. It's not a positive mental energy, you know. It's not us, like, having a sort of perspective. No. It's those God loves who reciprocate. Those God calls who reciprocate. Are you with me? And then we know that God works all things to good. In other words, it's Christians. It's not good Christians. It's not Christians who have a second work of blessing, and then, because of the second work of blessing, sanctification, then we know. You know, there's carnal Christians who sadly don't know, and real godly Christians who know. It's not, okay, the cognoscenti. It's not a Gnostic thing. It's not some special knowledge that some people in the church get and other people don't. know. if you are a Christian, you know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to the purpose. In other words, to Christians, okay? If you're a Christian, you know. Okay? You know. Now, These things are in lockstep together, all three. Those who know, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And in this case, the caboose is actually the locomotive. We're called according to God's purpose. We love him. We know that all things work together for our good. Okay? You with me? All right, now. I don't know how many of you know Max, Pastor Carell, well. But Pastor Carell has an inspired sermon once 
every four to eight weeks. You want me to stop now? (laughs) And right now, Pastor Max's inspired sermon is on the theme of bitterness. Okay? And I, uh, I, I'm prepared to believe that you're going to hear it soon. If you haven't, many of us have already heard it. So as I prepared to preach this, I had bitterness on my mind. And, you know, you don't have to go far from this world to have bitterness on your mind because it may be the central identification uh, of our culture and our age. All of us are given over to bitterness. So let me ask you this. Who is it who does not know that God works all things together for good? And you know where I'm headed. The answer is the bitter man, the bitter woman. Listen, if you have a root of bitterness... Don't tell me that you know that God works all things together for good. Do not even open your mouth. If you live life in a pity party, if you go around your world accusing others that they've done me wrong, if you think that you have some special cancerous tumor, that gives you the right to go through life without moral agency. If you think that God owes you one thing, one tiniest thing, that he has not yet fulfilled his obligation to you by giving to you, one tiniest thing, you are a bitter man, and you don't know God. Because those who belong to Christ know that all things work together for good. That's the identifying characteristic of us in this verse. We are absolutely certain that God is favorably disposed to us, most particularly at the the place of our greatest suffering. Come on. And now I can just imagine it because I've spent many, many years now counseling. And I can just imagine you saying to me, Ah, you old man, you old white man. What do you know about suffering? You haven't suffered the way I've suffered. Take a look at my scar. I've really suffered. Take a look at my wife. (laughs) You imagine living with her? (laughs) No, nobody here would say that, right? Take a look at my husband. Imagine living with him. And many of you would actually say that. Take a look at my scar. Take a look at my suffering. Take a look at my father. I grew up being abused by my father. You're going to talk to me about God ordering everything for good.
And listen, dear brother, dear sister, the root of bitterness corrupts many. It is impossible to live a life as a victim and to state your faith that you know that God works everything together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. If you live life as a victim, you do not know God. And God will not call you his own before his judgment seat. Do you hear me? I don't care what church you're a member of. I don't care what doctrine you claim to adhere to. It is impossible to belong to God and to think that God owes you anything. God owes you nothing. And until you hit that truth, (laughs) any of you remember my dad's poem? It has to be the favorite thing I've he ever wrote for me. And if I, if I were to read it to you, I, I'd be sobbing as I read it. And it's his poem on the death, a psalm on the death of an 18-year-old son. And he goes through this, this, he goes through this thing of losing his third son, his, his, his pride and joy. And he says, God, What on earth are you doing? What on earth? He was godly. His whole life was going to be in missions. He was a witness to everybody at his college. He would have given his life to you. He was giving his life to you. And you took him? Do you see this world? Do you see the poverty of this world? How many men do you know who are at the, at the inception of life with all the gifts he had, and they say, God, I'm here. Use me the way you want. You took him. And then my father says, this is the act of a madman. How could you do this? And then, Dad, and it's so typical of him. Nothing was cheap to Dad, (laughs) you know. And he says, you know, woven into this is this awareness that my father has of God sending his only begotten son. And so my dad, as God takes his son... My dad's thinking, and then my dad wrote another poem for Monday, Thursday about God sending his son into this disgusting world. And you watch my father just groaning, you know. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that at the end, you know what my dad says at the end of this poem? <laughs> He uses a word that none of us ever use. Do you remember what? You don't remember what it is. Uh, Mr. Wordsmith, a lot of good you are. Any of you remember what the word is? Go ahead. Thank you, sweetie. That's the word. 
this is my quit claim. Now, what does that mean? That was my father saying, I've had my say, and now I will shut up. I will shut up. And he's not being bitter. My father was not bitter. He sometimes had an edgy sense of humor. But he was not a bitter man. Listen. And we know what? Come on. That, come on. God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How many things? Does that include your sin? Uh, uh, uh. What about David? Was David improved version after Bathsheba? You bet he was. Read Psalm 51. Does that include your sin? Oh, you look at your sin. It's so obvious that God uses your sin for good. Does this mean that you should sin that good may abound? No. That's stupidity. But you're more humble, aren't you? And you're more aware of your own sin, aren't you? And you're more aware of God's glory and his holiness, aren't you? And you're more aware of what it means to really love other people, aren't you? And you're more aware of when you don't love other people, aren't you? Now, if this is true of your sin, all things work together, then how much more is it true of other people's sins against you? Huh? You think you've had sins committed against you that give you the right to be a victim the rest of your life and to moan and groan and... You have no right. Okay? You have none. Would you please go to God and say... I've been moaning, and I've been groaning, and I've been a victim, and I've been effeminate, and I've been disgusting, and I am the root of bitterness. And then say this, here is my quit claim, and shut your stupid mouth. (laughs) Don't worry, I love you. Be quiet. Or, for some of you, shut up. Stop it. Right, right, right? Everything is his appointment. Nothing comes to you that has not passed through his hand. You say, oh, well, then God's the author of evil. And I say, that's kind of stupid comment that a victim makes. No, God is not the author of evil. God uses second causes. And you say, well, you know, I would like to have a discussion with you about theodicy. And I say, no, I ain't going to do it. (laughs) You say, well, it's a very important issue. Lots of philosophers have spent their life yakking about it. And I say, yeah, but did you notice that here in this verse, the Apostle Paul doesn't say anything about it? He doesn't go into a long discourse about second causes. 
He doesn't go into a big discourse about how God can order everything for good and have so much suffering and evil in the world. You say, well, but he should have. And I say, uh, we know. We know. I mean, honestly, that's the answer. Now, one last thing and I'll be done. Remember how I said a long time ago that I get very tired of certain things that are said to me, and one of them being people just being so cocksure that they should go around telling everybody never to tell somebody who's suffering that God, we know that God works all things together. Romans 8.28 is the great gagged verse of the evangelical world. There's never a particular time to say it, and certainly not if you're dying and suffering. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The verse perfectly designed is gagged when it's perfectly applicable. Now, does that mean that when we walk into any room where there are tears, the first thing out of our lips should be, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. No, 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 no. That's not what it means. So I was talking to my sister a few weeks ago, and I was telling her how much I was looking forward to preaching this wonderful promise from God. And Deborah told me about how when Joe died, remember the one that the poem's written about, the son, she said we were, at, we were staying with friends of ours, the Kents, and a man walked in, and she remembers this, I don't remember it, but this man, this Christian man walked in, and as he walked in, he looked at everybody, you know, in the throes of the death of the third son, Okay? And he said, isn't it good to know that God works all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose? And what Deborah said is that nobody said anything in response to him. And Deborah was not aggressive and angry about it. What Deborah was was just disgusted. Now, why? Where is this inappropriate to say? (laughs) And my answer is, you will know if it's inappropriate to say. You'll feel it in your bones, and you say, well, what will I feel? And And my answer is, what you will feel is that you're trotting out that verse is your refusal to cry with those who cry. It will be the way that you distance yourself from the people who are suffering. It will be your inability to love those who mourn. The time will come when that confession will be made by them. Often, you don't have to even bring it up. But don't use this tritely. Don't use it glibly. Don't don't use this as your way of remaining as cold and surgical as you already are. When you go into a room where there's suffering, make sure you get integrated with the suffering before you trot out the biblical goodies. Are you all with me? Okay. I love you all. I love Doug Wilson. I love your children. I love your friends. Here in his love... Not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. And so we live together in love. And now we have the privilege in our love for God to come to his table and to have him feed us.